Welcome to the Littler Data Talk podcast, exploring the legal impact of big data on employers around the globe. Everybody, thanks for joining us for the Littler Data Talk podcast. On this episode, I'm really lucky to be joined by Natalie Pierce and Gary Mathiason, two people I'm really proud to call partners. Natalie and Gary collectively co-chair the firm's AI and robotics practice group. And today we're going to be walking through some of their thoughts around artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation, and what impact that's going to have for employers in the near and slightly more distant future. So with that, Gary and Natalie, thank you very much for joining me. We're delighted to be here. So thinking about this at a really high level, you know, I I think the, the one thing about this particular episode of the podcast is we're talking about a couple of, of things that have kind of loaded terms involved in them, right? So artificial intelligence, robotics. Why don't we maybe level set for the audience a little bit? What is the AI and robotics practice group and what's it focused on? Can we start there? Yeah, Gary, our chief visionary officer, if uh, we had such a title, did start this group. Uh, It's been about six years now, and really as a reaction to employers coming to us and wanting to know what to do when you have to fit 21st century technologies into 20th century laws and regulations. And so a lot of what we do is try and come up with best practices, standards for employers, given that it's very clear that that regulations won't keep up with technologies. And so we do everything from uh, vetting and validating exoskeletons. We also do things like uh, help employers who want to adopt uh, biometric technologies from anything from fingerprinting to wellness programs, things to monitor employee fatigue. We also look at the legal implications of things like telepresence and telemanipulation and what impact that might have on wage hour laws, privacy concerns. Etc. So it sort of runs the gamut that I would say probably where we're seeing most need and most questions is around what your team helps us with, Aaron, and that's with use of machine learning in uh, everything from hiring to evaluations to promotions and what needs to be done to, to make sure that the tools that are tested and ultimately adopted are are fair for workers and not going to expose our employers to litigation. Gary, uh, this is the product of your brain. Kind of where did you land in terms of 2013 and kind of deciding that this was something the firm needed to do and, and what drove you to do it? Well, it was very clear by 2013 that the technology had really accelerated exponentially and was having a major impact on the workplace. At the same time, we were dealing with laws and regulations that that were often uh, written or put into effect 50 years ago, 75 years ago, with no contemplation of what we would be facing. So one of the core objectives was to be a thought leader in this area and to really help map out the strategy of how our clients would deal with uh, the transformation of the workplace 
and the employment and labor law issues that would arise. Another purpose for the practice group was to look at the industry and the robotics and artificial intelligence industry, which is about a quarter of a billion dollars today, is projected to be a trillion dollars by 2025 and the largest industry in the world. Not too long after that, almost every industry has an AI plan or robotics aspect to it, and it will affect most, if not all, workplaces. So with that, our group is merely the head of uh, a sphere, so to speak, within Littler that's looking out into the future and bringing the entire firm with it. There are many aspects of this that uh, go beyond this particular practice group, and uh, you are covering one of the important ones with data analytics. We have the Workplace Policy Institute that's looking at the effect of uh, robotics in eliminating jobs, but at the same time a great creation of jobs and the need to reskill. So all aspects of it, including the fact the way we internally use artificial intelligence and robotics within Littler, especially artificial intelligence. Then the specific applications I think Natalie has given you an excellent list of, and we can talk about those in more detail as we go through some of the other questions. Yeah, let's, let's do that. And in fact, I think maybe a high-level one, which I think we've touched on a little bit, a high-level one for me, and, and I, when I mention the fact that we have this to people, I occasionally get this response of, why does a labor and employment law firm concern itself with artificial intelligence and robotics? Why should lawyers and executives and human resource professionals be concerned with artificial intelligence and robotics? And for me, maybe that's sort of the jump-off spot, right? Because again, these are very loaded terms. People think artificial intelligence and they immediately conjure images of of HAL from 2001 and the Terminator and Skynet, right? And I think obviously that's not right, but I think helping people understand the difference between imagination and reality in this space is really important. And that for me drives home why this matters. But can you guys talk about that just a little bit from your perspective? I feel like this is so critical not only for workforces, which is where we focus, but for humanity, not to sound overly dramatic, but what we're really facing is this tipping point where we're seeing that we, we still, you know, we're far, far from general AI. We're still at narrow AI in its infancy, but the progress, I think is surprising even experts who have been at this for decades, uh, what we can do, and it's really having that big data and applying the machine learning to that big data. So we're, we're seeing leaps and bounds. And I, I think the reason I say it's not just workforces and it is humanities, because we have to keep careful tabs on the ethics behind the AI and the development and staying ahead and staying competitive. It really is important that those who do care about things like transparency and ethical applications of AI and keeping some controls around it and frankly caring about what happens to employees as we look to fill skills gaps, as we look to make sure that, you know, we don't have so many people left behind. We want to get the message out there that now is beyond the time that employers should be planning and they have such a key role 
in what happens to us as a society. And, and so focusing on how the applications can help with filling skills gaps, with retraining employees, with making sure that as these transformative technologies are developed, they are developed in a transparent manner and applied ethically, it is key. And, and so we're not going to, you know, we're just not going to have the regulations. And so it's important to give some good guideposts to corporations who care and to the government agencies that are willing to work with us and, and academia as well. And, you know, one thing Gary started, we can talk about it years ago, was just this leadership roundtable where we do precisely that, is get collective voices together to really help create what we can expect the federal government to do in a, in a timely manner. It's, it's just, you know, good guidelines. AI is a broad term, and it encompasses a number of different types of intelligence, but it's really the use of technology computers to do things that would normally be done by people. And we're far from general intelligence. There's a tremendous importance and role for people. And what I find fascinating is that with the speed of application in robotics and artificial intelligence that's occurring, you're having a significant effect, and you're going to see it more over the next five years, of layoffs and reductions in force. But at the same time, I predict, and most of our experts support, that there will be probably 50% to 100% greater growth in the need for people. And the low current unemployment rate is just indicative of what we see coming in the future. And just about every CEO says people are one of their most important or their most important assets in an organization. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And actually, you both, um, there's a thing I've been thinking about, and you may have to bear with me as I say this, because I, I have never actually articulated this in any sort of public forum out loud. But I, I would love to get your thoughts on it. So, Natalie and Gary, you both used the phrase narrow artificial intelligence and general artificial intelligence, right? And I think about those things in, in very specific ways, narrow artificial intelligence being the way things work today, as in you can train an algorithm to become very, very functional in a relatively thin stream of activity. So playing chess, playing Go, making decisions about when the elements of a contract that have been hard-coded into it have been met such that some action needs to take place, et cetera. But if you took that Go algorithm and you ask it to play checkers, my four-year-old would beat it. So that's narrow artificial intelligence. General artificial intelligence, something that is quasi-self-aware or fully self-aware, able to be multidisciplinary and basically functioning like a human intelligence at some level. I, I fall into the camp where looking at the technology, you know, we use the term intelligence, but I actually don't think that's right because these things are not intelligent in any way. They are executing very complex math around statistical models, doing that's pattern right. recognition and, and some level of, of inference, right? Yes. And so I look at that, and, and when I look at the technology, I fall into the camp where I don't believe general artificial intelligence ever happens. Oh, um, I disagree more. Well, well hold on. So I, I actually, 
Yeah, I'm not shocked that you disagree at all, Gary. That's kind of why I wanted to get your, your take on this. Okay, I will hold um, that. Yeah, so here's what I do think happens. And I think that it's potentially functionally exactly the same as a world where general artificial intelligence exists. And I think the scenario is that we will have ubiquitous narrow artificial intelligence that all comes together because it's being created by or facilitated by the same handful of companies or that, that ultimately end up sort of controlling chunks of them or all of them and that they will all streamline and play together through an orchestration layer. And so you will have narrow artificial intelligence that they're all designed to handle some specific task, but they will be everywhere for every sort of conceivable task that we can think of. And I think for me, that comes across as the most likely scenario. And if that's true, then aren't we essentially in a place where from a functional aspect, it's the same as having general artificial intelligence without some of the threats of like Skynet or, you know, the, the uh, intelligence that you teach to make paper clips running wild and deciding to turn the entire earth into paper clips and moving out into space, et cetera, et cetera, which is a, a scenario that you occasionally hear thrown around. So I'd, I'd love each of your thoughts on that because you spend a lot of time in this space as well and thinking about it. Well, let me start the discussion, but I want to be clear that the value of what we're discussing in terms of looking at how far artificial intelligence can go really has to be related back to the employer, the workplace, and what we yep. do as law firms. Uh, I get the opportunity to see an enormous amount of development in this area at all levels, including quantum computing. And what is so clear is that we can only see so far into the distance. Uh, it wasn't long ago there was enormous embarrassment. Some data scientists wrote extensive articles on why you could never have a self-driving car. And uh, literally when they published those works, uh, the self-driving car technology had been created and the algorithms had been worked out so that you could effectively have a self-driving car and now that industry is racing toward the actual implementation of the process. And, and I think we have to keep that in mind with the technology. But your deeper point is the coordination of the narrow intelligence, the individual algorithm that is working on a particular problem, and coordinating across platforms and bringing it all together, I think will emulate a lot of the things that we do as humans and increase the application and efficiency of the use of artificial intelligence. However, this is not going to, in the next 5 to 10 to 20 years, affect the need for people. Because there is, as you hypothecate, a creative element that we haven't quite solved yet, but I'm not prepared to say that we won't. Uh, the singularity could occur at some time in the distant future. But we'll move closer to it. And at the same time, you need people for social issues. And there's so many functions that technology creates for people that your major problem in the workplace is going to be identifying the skills necessary for the next generation of projects and moving the quality and capability of your workforce forward, all of which is held back and limited by uncertainty. And the uncertainty yep. is so much in the technology. 
it's not knowing where the regulations are going to fall and how restrictive government is going to be and what the ethical barriers are going to be, how we're going to use facial recognition and privacy, and the antitrust actions have been brought against some of the top technology providers, leaves a lot of confusion. And the number one mission we have within the law firm is to provide a platform, an approach, a solution, or a variety of compliance solutions that have high probability of surviving uh, the interpretations that will come in the future. If we can empower employers to be able to build systems that effectively allow you to move forward at a faster speed, we have done a great service of both the companies and I think ultimately for humanity. I give it, you know, sometimes people like to play the game of when, what year, what year are we going to start seeing uh, general AI? And I don't know, Gary, I don't know if we've, we've played this game, but I, I think as soon as 2060, possibly. Yeah. I could see that uh, Ray Kurzweil has projected a little bit earlier year, but it's a mistake to think it's a, an off and on switch. This is a progression toward. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. So maybe taking kind of a, a step back, if we think that's the curve and, and we have this idea of sort of what's out there today and what's available, are you surprised at, well, so again, one more step back. We just did the, the Littler employer survey, and one of the things we saw was a set of questions in the uh, survey itself that asked about employer adoption, our client adoption of artificial intelligence and automation in the human resources process, right? And one of the things, if you calculated those, all of those answers together, what you saw was about 37% of our clients are doing something in the space or have plans to in the near future. And 44% of our clients said, we're not doing anything and we have no intention of doing so in the foreseeable future. And that number actually surprised me. I think maybe some of those 44% are probably using tools that are algorithmically backed and just don't realize it. But are you surprised by sort of the size of that 44% number and the idea that they we have clients that are looking at it today saying we have no plans to jump into that anytime soon. I think your point about not recognizing that they are jumping into it is correct. I think additionally, HR has been slower to adopt artificial intelligence tools and thinking than the rest of the organization. And you do find a number of organizations where if you go to the C-suite and to the the CEO and the chief technology officer, they've already got a plan, and they're using it for sales, production, and a lot of other functions within the organization. And uh, you get a number of HR individuals. They aren't Luddites, but they're a little bit mired in the past that don't quite see this, and they need to see it because it is going to impact the HR departments, and both Natalie and I are seeing that happen at a faster and increasing pace on a regular basis, and I predict that in five years, 60% of departments will be fully using it at a mature level for the technology of the time, and 20% of those that aren't will be literally in organizations that are stumbling or about to go out of business. I think that's probably right. Natalie, where do you come down on that? Maybe it's just because of the fact that I'm co-chair of this practice group, but 
on a daily basis now, I'm getting either LinkedIn messages or direct email that are saying, hey, you know, automate your, <laughs> automate your hiring process and we'll help you figure out which employees you should be rewarding for performance. And, and so I think there's, you know, there's so much that is out there and the rate of adoption frankly does surprise me, but I think that the reason why we're seeing low rates of adoption is precisely what we talked about at the head of this podcast, which is how can employers trust the tools that are out there without knowing that there's going to be any safe harbors. And we've you know, pretty much been, been told don't expect safe harbors. You may have the best intentions. And that's why, Erin, your practice group is so key to our practice in, in helping employers get through this is because you really need to do the real uh, pilot testing and, uh, and validation studies, et cetera, because if there's unintended consequences, then, yeah, employers are going to be exposed. But even, you know, saying all that, I am surprised with the responses that we received, but it it does sort of mirror what we're seeing when we're, we're going around the world and sort of asking who is using these tools. It's a very low rate across most industries. I think that that will change, but right now it's just because, in, especially in the U.S., there is the, the fear of litigation due to unintended consequences. And that is why, and in fact a major driver we're trying to do as a law firm is to really lay out a pattern and approach to create compliance, likely compliance in advance of the regulations, provide thought leadership for the regulations, and let our clients actually be at the forefront of using the positive aspects of that technology. It does not surprise me that there are a number of individuals and even organizations that don't see this incredible wave coming and don't really have a feeling yet for the speed of it. I put together a program a few years ago talking about things that uh, would show up in litigation and uh, I used an HR group as a testing method to find out if we were hitting the right issues. And one of the issues I brought up was the use of email as evidence. And the feedback I got was all the other issues were right, litigation landmine, but using email for litigation was really ridiculous, wasn't going to happen for a long time, didn't have to worry about it. And that was exactly wrong. And literally, I got an apology two years later from every member of the group <laughs> saying, how could we have been so wrong and not seen this coming? And I think it's very similar. This technology that has the potential of ethical breaches, discrimination, and litigation also brings solutions to providing a better and more effective workforce uh, right. of allowing minorities that would be excluded from the hiring process a greater opportunity to join. I can give you one example where the technology actually breaks down the job description and starts challenging some of these seniority rules, like needing five years of a particular type of experience, which happens to keep a lot of women and people of color from being considered for jobs 
that their current skill level and experience would actually qualify them for. And if you don't take advantage of the tools that are there and you're dealing with the volume of uh, resumes, issues, and factors that need to be considered, you're quickly not going to be competitive. Yeah, and to Natalie's point, that technology is available today. The big thing being that piloting it, testing it, doing the adverse impact testing on a regular basis so that you can tease out whether or not there's impermissible bias that's either existent or creeping into the model, all the pieces and parts that we sort of recommend around best practices when you're trying to onboard these. But they have tremendous ability. I mean, the Gary, the, the ability to leverage these tools so that employers can tap into, for instance, the veteran employee population, right, because of the, the historic difficulty of translating veteran resumes to sort of the private sector, and then also the ability to potentially leverage that batch of resumes that came in from a bunch of people who have affirmatively said they want to join your org because they previously applied for a position, but one that they didn't get. The ability to go back and scrape that and find those people who are already enthusiastic about you, but then maybe they weren't a match for the job for which they applied, but they're a match for three others that they didn't know were out there. I mean, those are just a couple of examples about where we see immediate application of these tools to crack open hard to access employee pools, but in a really, really tight labor market, those things could be absolutely clutch for an org that's struggling, right? Absolutely. There's an organization right now that deals with the virtual employment and contractors that are brought over the internet. Interestingly, they break down the skill levels of the individuals into 5,000 categories and yet within literally minutes due to AI, they can take a job, break down the elements of it that's coming in, and identify four or five contractors that have actually had that experience, provide you information on how they uh, were evaluated by the people for which they did projects, and actually make the information, contact information available immediately. That can't be done without artificial intelligence and the new technology. And the power of that in the competitive world that we're in for talent and people is enormous. And if you don't tap into it and make use of it, it is ultimately going to make your company non-competitive. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. Can we pivot just a little bit to more of the automation and robotics side of the equation? The three of us have had a long-running conversation around the automation of jobs. And while HR is struggling with kind of this, how do they deploy artificial intelligence-based tools in, in sort of their daily job, they're also now being confronted with the people side of automation. And, and we've talked a lot about how automation will happen first inside of jobs that encompass one of the four Ds, right? They're, they're dirty, they're dull, they're dangerous, or they're delicate. Do we have examples of, of a couple of those? Because I think sometimes those are hard for kind of HR professionals and attorneys and executives to wrap their head around. And I, I think having some concrete examples that are going on today helps people look at their own workforce and maybe anticipate where automation may be about to hit them that they have to figure out how to grapple with. I'm a really big Cobot fan, and what we're seeing with integration of collaborative robotics into the workplace is 
a kind of a beautiful and great thing because we are seeing exactly what you talked about in replacing some of those four tasks. And, and it really is human enhancement. I mean, we're not talking about human replacement, but if you talk to people and ask them, what's it like to have this robot coworker? And they're like, you know, it's great because I can focus on higher skill tasks. Uh, I'm not, you know, as prone to repetitive injuries. I can get a lot more done. I can use a higher skill set. And, and we see, you know, the use of collaborative robots in a lot of different industries, but things like sorting, packing, lab tests, you know, making the, the precision which is required to sort of repeat these more delicate tasks that, that really need to be precisely accomplished in order to make sure that you have a good product at the end of the manufacturing process. And so I think that's a reason that we're seeing such a worldwide increase in collaborative robot sales. And the price is, just continues to come down. The programmatability, um, gosh, I think my 10-year-old could program and reprogram a cobot in 20 minutes and, and easy adoptability into the workplace, we are going to see greater opportunities for employers to really up their productivity and increase their employee morale. And what I'm surprised at, Natalie, is how joyful a number of employees are to get that kind of assistance. They're skeptical at first but often after the cobots arrive and they start working with them, have an incredibly positive response to it. And even now, if you do surveys of the millennial generation, 75, 80% say they would welcome that kind of assistance to make their jobs more interesting, effective, and to really enhance their ability to do things that otherwise involve a lot of mechanical tasks that delay them and limit them. Yeah, absolutely. I was watching something the other day, and it was uh, an example of this. It was matching industrial welders with cobots so that the cobots could take on sort of the really dangerous pieces of the project, and the human was there to guide it and sort of be the strategic mind behind where you deployed the cobot. Are you guys seeing that as well? It's funny you raise that as the example because there is – a real tension around how are we going to deploy some of these cobots and where do we have real risks and and welding is one where where there is some real concerns because of how dangerous a process can be and so it's carefully watched by organizations like the robotics industries association and the safety groups that they collaborate with to kind of come up with best practices and so there's a real careful eye kept on those applications. And again, we don't have the regulations, we just have best practices. And I think everyone has a collective concern and want to make sure that we don't have accidents because we're not being as careful as possible. And welding is one of those examples. But yeah, if done carefully, <laughs> and taking every possible safety precaution, it can reduce the dangerous work that is associated with, with welding. But leaving that in the hands of a cobot is something that 
I can say there are some organizations out there who are concerned and carefully watching that. Yeah, I think there is more of a subtle issue than the obvious one of uh, using robotics and artificial intelligence in situations that are dull, dirty, and dangerous, mining being a primary example. Uh, you couldn't really even create offshore welling the way it's done without submergible robotics that allow the welding and connecting to go on in environments people couldn't function in. But for an employment and labor law issue, this is real. We were brought into a case, and the technology actually allowed the robotic system to build drywall. Uh, already there are many systems that do bricklaying, but this did drywall and uh, eliminated potentially a number of jobs and also created the issue of the job category of the operator of the robotics and especially in the context of a union contract. Being able to get in and look at the employment law issues and considerations and how you can work with the workforce to actually make them invite deficiencies and deal with issues like wage and hour concerns, union representation, collective bargaining compliance is exactly what Littler Mendelssohn was created for. This is where we can give our clients not only representation when they have a problem, but much more importantly, a compliance program ahead of time so that they have less of a problem and a greater ability to use and effectively put in place the technology. I think that that's, a, that's an amazing point, Gary, because adoption, the barriers to adoption around these kinds of technologies, right, a lot of times it's not a barrier, it's not a technical barrier, it's a barrier that is artificially erected because of the concerns you're laying out. I'm, I'm actually thinking really specifically of the Las Vegas example and that some of yeah. the, the labor negotiation that's gone on in, in and around the hotels and casinos there with respect to automation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because the idea that, you know, that labor contracts would prohibit employers from adopting automation that could really help their bottom line is somewhat difficult, at least for me, to digest. There's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding in this area. I've had the privilege of uh, many times being invited to present at national conferences of the uh, Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service and had a chance to talk to dozens of business agents and uh, high executives in various labor organizations. And there is very little direct opposition to the technology or a belief that the technology can be held back or a belief that the technology is inherently evil. What the unions are focused on, and the Las Vegas strike is a good example, is protecting the worker so that they're not abruptly thrown out of their job by the technology, but they actually have a path and a transition to be kept by the company, one, or number two, that there be some kind of a severance program in place that would allow the uh, worker some transition time. And this is a little bit like our project Coalition Emma that's looking at ways of solving this kind of problem. Walter Ruther, many, many years ago, uh, gave a speech for the uh, auto workers union 
and announced that they would strongly support with General Motors, Ford, and the auto industry uh, the advance in the use of technology. They wanted two things, some degree of job security so that people could uh, stay with the progress that was being made and sharing in the productivity. And those are critical items. I am the first to admit that that sometimes can greatly hinder the speed at which an employer can act, and it seems like they're restricting the use of the technology. On the other hand, the door is still open to do that, and anything we can do as a law firm to advance and facilitate the ability of the technology to work into the workforce, be accepted, and happen more quickly and effectively, uh, I think justifies part of the mission of our law firm. I think what I hear you saying, Gary, is that there is a really significant strategic aspect when it comes to the employer-employee relationship and rolling out these kinds of technologies, and that there's a, a premium to be put on thinking about that ahead of time and coming up with a plan and maybe even having a conversation across the table with labor ahead of time in order to sort of prevent it from going through kind of a start-stop, start-stop process. Is that kind of your That's take? That's a very good explanation. I completely agree with you. And I don't think What's it's just in a labor union situation. I think that those values can be applied in multiple situations. What do you mean? I mean that people that are not represented by a union or subject to some kind of trade organization have many of the same concerns individually about their job, their job description, their future, and the idea of thinking about it, planning for it, being able to go to people like one of the major companies in the country did a reduction in force of 18,000 people and didn't have to lay one person off because they did such an excellent job of offering alternative methods of improving skills, using those people more effectively, and some exit strategies that people voluntarily accepted. That's good planning, and it pays dividends. Yeah, I can completely see that. It, and it's, it, it does strike me, though, that, that one of the reasons we may be seeing kind of the current low level of adoption of some of these technologies is actually that people maybe haven't thought about that aspect of it before trying to roll some of these out. And, you get stung by it once and then you step back. Is that kind of your sense as well? Not only is that my sense, I think that's where, as a law firm, we can be a facilitator to actually encourage and speed up the adoption of technology. The idea that you have uncertainty and you don't plan for it and you hit bumps and walls suggests that there is a role to be played in looking at the current laws and procedures, finding paths that work, and also this thought leadership effort that we're engaged in across the firm is not just designed for our clients, but it also reaches out into the world of the regulators, the educators, uh, the people that make policy, and try to create some workable guidelines that are gonna let all of us move forward and hopefully have a better and more effective workplace and more success in the economic battlefield that's occurring nationwide and globally. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's right. I mean, that, and that actually kind of brings two thoughts to mind. One is the thought that you and I have talked somewhat at length the last time we were together in person about this idea of uh, safe harbor, right, around the deployment of algorithms and automating technologies. That one of the things that policymakers should really consider is legislation or regulation that essentially says, look, if you are going to deploy these and we think it's a, a net good for the economy and society and whatever, if you're going to deploy these and, you know, you've got every good intention and you test them for bias and you roll them out and despite your best efforts, there's some level of bias that creeps into the system. As long as you're auditing regularly and if you find bias, you take steps to de-bias or decommission that algorithm and start another one, that you should be protected at some level from litigation and the, the costs and the headaches of that. And that would facilitate the adoption of these kinds of technologies. You know, that was several months ago when we kind of talked about that. And I'm sure you've been thinking about it ahead of time, or, or since then rather. And the, the model we used was sort of the model that some of the states have come up around pay equity, right? This is if you do a pay equity audit and you find problems, but then you take reasonable steps to begin to address those problems, you're immune from suit for some period of time. Have you sort of taken that thought further? I think it is a, a real serious potential. There's a lot of controversy because the fear is that it's going to provide employers a methodology of avoiding liability. And ironically, it, it may prevent lawsuits and uh, legal liability, but it actually is making the environment better you're enforcing the laws, and you're being more successful, and you're being considerate of the uh, protected categories and the existing laws as you advance the technology. Let me give you an example in one of the industries that I think you are looking at for the use of robotics and artificial intelligence of uh, something that's occurring this week, and that is in the food industry. There's a great concern over personal hygiene, as well as equipment cleaning. And artificial intelligence is extremely helpful in maximizing the uh, cleaning process with regard to equipment and what needs to be done, how fast it needs to be done, where the resources need to be allocated. But there's uh, actually a lot of effort in hygiene. And you wouldn't think at first that touches on employment and labor law, but it absolutely does because some of the artificial intelligence uses facial recognition to identify the employee and then looks as to whether they have their gloves on and what they're doing and looks specifically to see if there's something that potentially could cause a problem with the food and the hygiene that's necessary to ensure that the food is properly delivered. That's exactly the kind of issue that we would look at as to whether you have to get advanced approval on the facial recognition technology, how you roll that out to the employees so that they're not offended by it, whether you decide that this is so intrusive that it is counterproductive, and if there are alternative ways of doing it, even something as simple as what's the consequence of it. Because if the consequence of it is to encourage people to do better on the habits as opposed to disciplining them, you may find them much more receptive to that. 
ultimately then comes up the question of at what point do you discipline. And I raise that just to let you think about how integrated the technology is with the practice of employment and labor law. And we aren't going to solve all these problems in a podcast, but it is exciting and the mission of our firm to provide as many solutions and as much advanced thinking on this area as we are capable of offering. Yeah, and I, you know, I love that. I mean, that this, quite honestly, is, is why I came back to the firm, right? Is because we're, we're doing this. We're thinking about it. We are in the trenches with clients, figuring this out in a space that is essentially the, the legislative and legal version of the Wild West in some ways, right? Absolutely. Gary, one last thing I really want to talk about a little bit because it's very near and dear to my heart. We touched on it a couple of times during the course of this conversation. Our work with the Emma Coalition, right, our work putting that together, you know, because I honestly believe that we stand at the sort of the precipice of a real opportunity that a lot of these technologies, and especially if it's something like ubiquitous, narrow artificial intelligence that all sort of plays together very nicely and takes care of a lot of the, the sort of mundane, dirty, dangerous stuff that we're dealing with in the course of our day-to-day -day jobs and lives, that that presents a tremendous opportunity to up-level what people do, to take people out of jobs that, you know, quite frankly, are kind of not that great and move them to something that's maybe more satisfying, maybe more intellectually challenging, something that is more engaging, but that the on-ramp to that process is fraught with some level of peril, right? We're sort of at a place where if we get it right, it's essentially the Jetsons, maybe minus the flying cars. And if we get uh, it wrong... Don't count on some... minus flying cars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, no, okay, fair point, fair point. Talk about and, uh, yes, they are. As recently as this week, SpaceX engines are being considered to be used on flying cars. Oh, I had not seen that. That's fascinating. So maybe, you know, the Jetsons with flying cars, so <laughs> the Jetsons on the, on the one hand, um, but for yeah, potentially but, but on the other hand. So right, Aaron, as to the importance of this, I think it's one of the most important initiatives in the law firm. And it's a good example of the fact that we're not talking about narrow practice areas. Mike right. Latito, who really heads up and energizes the Workplace Policy Institute, who brought that concept to Littler and we endorsed it and support it, participated in 2017 in our roundtable and uh, wasn't thinking much about the issue you just raised until so much discussion came up about the fact that the real problem wasn't the destruction of jobs, but the inability of people to meet the requirements of the new jobs that were being created. And he actually came up with the concept that we could mobilize the employer community through the Emma Coalition, and Emma is the name of his granddaughter, and provide intelligence as to how this could best be done, suggestions on lifelong learning, an analysis of job tasks and skills that will be necessary that don't require going back to college and getting a degree or a PhD, but can be effectively done online. They can actually be enhanced with AI-assisted learning. There's so many tools and options available. And then the whole concept of lifelong learning. We're going to make a major contribution, I think, to our society and to the effectiveness of the workplace if we can bring solutions 
to this problem and these issues? Because people are going to be very important far into the future. Oh, absolutely. I, and, and this one, as I said, is near and dear to my heart. One of the conversations Michael and I keep having over the last you know, year and a half or so is around this conversation, or around this concept, rather, of uh, much like a 401k, right? Some sort of, of bank of money that employers could put money into on a match or something and that employees could contribute to that would be portable, but that would support, rather than retirement someday, would be tax advantaged and potentially support lifelong learning initiatives, right? That you could put money into this thing over time, maybe it's got a match. If you leave that job, it comes with you because you don't need to use it. But when and if you need to use it, it's there to support you going through whatever's necessary to upskill in order to move into your next job. Absolutely. That's a great example. The important thing to recognize is there's no single solution. It has to be a broad spectrum of solutions and then customized to the industry and the company. Yeah, absolutely. Gary, I think I think we're about out of time for the day. Yeah, and I actually Aaron, think I that want to that challenge is... you on something. Yes, sir. Uh, you said that uh, you don't think we would ever get to general AI. And I disagree. I think we'll get there even though we don't know how to do it currently. And there's a lot that we can't see. But something very interesting is occurring this week in the fashion industry. There's a company that has come into existence that is creating new fashions for people and creating dresses and other clothing that are incredibly well-made, incredibly inventive, and designed by artificial intelligence with two neural networks working against each other. And the, um, the next time you see somebody wearing a little black dress, it's entirely likely that it was created by artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, I, I think the the concept of, of generative adversarial networks, um, you know, GANs for short, uh, the the number of applications for those for creating things is a resource that we don't yet understand. I, I I'm sure you've been paying attention to this concept of deep fakes and the ability to create essentially conversations yeah. or images or videos yeah. that are you literally cannot tell whether they are real people or not, um, and they're entirely generated out of, out of nothing. They're pure digital creations. That obviously has applications in the physical realm, like fashion, for instance. Uh, it, it, I, I, I had never yeah, thought to use it to create little, bla little black dresses, but I love it. Issue. And that's another field that we're very active in. There's so many practical aspects of what we do at Littler that are influenced and affected by the advance of AI and robotics that I personally believe, and I speak with 50 years of experience of creating new areas of employment law and new solutions to problems, that this is the seminal area of activity. I think there's gonna be more opportunity to solve issues and problems in AI and robotics in the workplace than any place else. And I think that uh, the entire law firm is going to be able to benefit from seeing this development, participating in the solutions. And we are so appreciative of your work, Aaron, in data analytics, because it is absolutely a critical building block to this initiative that is taking place across the firm. 
that's very kind of you. I mean, I I wake up every day feeling lucky that, that I get to come and have these kinds of conversations and spend time doing the things I, you know, I would do on my own, but get paid at the same time because, uh, you know, being able to tap into brains like yours and Natalie and, and have these discussions and trying to push this envelope is one of the things that I, I really personally enjoy. So anytime I get to spend with you, I value you know, more than I can explain. So thank you very much for spending the time with me today. I, you know, I hope people listen to this and, and sort of it opens a horizon and helps them think about a topic that I think can be kind of very scary and very hard to wrap your head around sometimes. But, you know, when I hear you and Natalie talk about it, I'm always like, oh, this is so simple. I don't understand why I didn't understand it until just now. You're so right. There's so much we can do in helping people, employers in particular, in preparing for these wonderful changes that are about to occur and making life better for people in the workplace. And it really is a joy to be able to work with them inside a law firm that values those issues and is more interested in having our clients uh, avoid litigation than merely defend litigation when it occurs. Absolutely. So Gary, we've talked today uh, kind of about these issues in esoteric ways at some sense, right? We're talking general policy, things that can end up fairly abstract. But let's, let's bring it to something that's very real and very grounded. We're helping clients with issues related to the adoption of artificial intelligence-backed tools and automating tools, robotics, et cetera. Can we talk a little bit, just give me some examples of things that we're doing for clients today that involve this practice group at a nuts and bolts level. How can we help? Well, let me give you a few examples because there are so many areas and issues that are present today that need to be addressed as well as a vastly increased number just coming around the corner. You start with the fact that we are using an HR on resumes, uh, more artificial intelligence to work through those resumes and give us access to new areas. You need to look for algorithmic bias. You need to, algorithms and that process, well, it can solve discriminatory issues, it can create them. And you need to have a plan in place as to how to do that. And it includes several steps. And that's exactly what Littler can advise you on. And you're dealing with that uh, on a daily basis with digital analytics. Another area is biometrics. We have a problem of people punching in other people's time clocks. If you're going to use facial recognition as a tool, there are issues you need to know about. There are laws, there are regulations, there are anticipated regulations that we could plan for in advance so that when you institute that program, you have a higher likelihood that it'll be successful. You have actually a wearable, everything from implants to the ability to identify where people are at various times and what they're doing. And that deals with the evaluation of privacy in the workplace, what role does it play, discrimination, and then violation of statutes and regulations that would cause penalties back on the organization. The Illinois Biometric Privacy Act actually has over 200 class actions currently pending. That gives you an example of real litigation that's occurring today. Safety with cobots that we've talked about, uh, the hand pressure that can be applied, 
whether they can use their ability to hear and record information, uh, what limitations are there under state law for that to take place. The collective bargaining process, we've already given you some good examples. Uh, layoffs and rehiring rights are part and parcel of the job displacement process that occurs. There are just so many everyday examples of where this advice can be used, and they're only going to grow because as the various parts of the workplace are transformed, that puts pressure on employment laws and regulations that we've created to make a more effective and successful workplace and protect people's rights. And we're going to see a great deal of that revisited, reviewed, and remade with this technology. Yeah, well, you're going to see that, and then without cracking open another giant egg, because I think we're running out of time, the privacy and cybersecurity pieces of this, right? Because not only are you increasing the threat surface by introducing, for instance, all of these networked cobots that sort of expand your space, but putting them in direct conversation with clients, and then also the digitization or digitalization of the workforce by putting them with cobots and some of these technologies, right? We were able to learn a lot more about the pieces and parts of a given job, how hard things are, how much time goes into a specific task, things that we may not have been able to understand, but if we can make them digital, we can then engage analytics against them and really start to understand exactly how these things work and function. And that immediately brings in cybersecurity laws, how much protection does the employer have to put in place to protect this private personal information, how much of the information can be used, what kinds of systems are vulnerable to outside hacking, and how far does the employer have to go in building protection to avoid this from occurring. I think it's not well understood that the blockchain, which is heavily talked about as kind of a, a real solution to this area, already has been hacked to some extent. And with new technology that's on the horizon, uh, that may break apart even faster. So there's so many issues that have to be carefully considered. But cybersecurity is something we're advising clients on on a daily basis and is a critical part of every organization. Absolutely. Well, Gary, thank you so much for um, everything that was today. I, I really appreciate it. And I think everybody who listens to this is going to find a tremendous amount of value in it. So thanks very much. Thank you for having us. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.